I'm Naomi Smith, and my next job might be in cyber, but for now, it's presenting The Bunker. On this week's podcast, tears for fears. As the UK reaches the tipping point on coronavirus, what will the government's new three-tier system of local lockdown measures mean for England? Plus, client journalism. Former journo Allegra Stratton is the new face of Number 10's televised briefings, but is she just there to act as the government's human shield before an increasingly unruly press? Also, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Cake Decorator? What is going on with the government's career assessment tool and its bizarre suggestions of new jobs in booming industries like aviation and uh, DJing? All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome back to the bunker and our crack team of hecklers and nitpickers. First up, hello to the author of How to Be a Liberal 10% off with a discount code in the show notes, listeners, and editor of politics.co.uk. It's Ian Dunt. I'm starting to feel like I shouldn't have put 10% off to bunker listeners in the book title now. It just seems a bit weird. (laughs) Ian, uh, it's really easy for stories to get lost in the current tornado of misery. But what did you make of the uh, story of Robert Jenrick and Communities Minister Jake Berry okaying money for one another's constituencies? You know, is this a, is this a bit of a pattern of behaviour from old Jenrick? You know, he has got previous, yeah. doesn't he? He does. Well, yeah, I mean, all he has is previous. It does basically look like they've done swapsies, basically, of authorising this stuff, which is supposed to be funds for deprived areas. Now, Newark, his constituency, is the 270th most deprived area when it comes to You just think, like, well, this isn't exactly how the fund is supposed to be used. Mm. But the, the story, I mean, it was reported in The Guardian, but it hasn't got much pickup, partly because you sort of feel that this kind of stuff is becoming slightly par for the course. And also partly just because the news onslaught that we're going through at the moment means there's not really enough attention on it. Yeah, lots of uh, good days to bury bad news at the moment. Mm. Also, hello to Times Radio host and recovering Labour spin doctor, Aisha Hazarika. Welcome, Aisha. Hello, hello. Aisha, the country was overjoyed this week uh, to see MPs getting the £3,300 pay rise they so richly deserve, uh, and particularly in this failing economy too. Why weren't they happy to just accept a couple of weeks of the nation standing in their front doors and clapping for them? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a very good point. Now, first of all, um, they haven't they haven't got it yet. So IPSA, which is the independent uh, body which was set up in the wake of the MPs' expenses scandal, they have they are consulting on this um, at the at the moment. So, I mean, it probably will go through, but it's important to say it hasn't quite gone through yet. And there's a bit of misinformation out there. People are saying that MPs have voted for this themselves. That is actually not factually accurate. But it is still absolutely ridiculous when you think of the number of people who are losing their jobs or about to lose their jobs are absolutely racked with anxiety. And then, of course, you have MPs who are not actually coming into Parliament right now. They're just in their constituencies, many of them. So, you know, why is this pay rise justified? And also you have MPs like Margaret Ferrier, you know, who have been disgraced and they're happy to still take the salary for not doing any work and take the increase. But interestingly, I actually had four MPs from all the different parties on my Times radio show on Sunday afternoon. And I asked them what they would do with the money. And I thought it would be a no-brainer. I thought they would all say, well, obviously, I'm going to give it to a food bank in my constituency. And all of them, I mean, I kind of expected it from the Tory, but even the Labour person and even the super virtuous SNP person said, oh, no, no, actually, it's a private matter in terms of what I do with it, i.e. I'll keep it. Hmm. So I think, um, yeah, I think they really have, they're not going to cover themselves with glory. Keir Starmer has said that something should be done. But uh, frankly, if I was an MP getting that money right now, I would immediately publicly say that you're going to give it to a good cause in your constituency. I mean, the average salary in Britain, I think, is just around the sort of 30k mark. So being paid upwards of 80k a year plus expenses, of course, does just seem incredibly generous to to most people. But you do hear this argument that we pay our MPs too little because they could be earning so much more elsewhere in the city, etc, etc. And that that means we don't get the talent in Parliament that we should. Uh, what, What do you say to that? I mean, there is there is some truth in that. It is a lot of money and it is a lot compared to the national um, average. But I, I do have to say there are a lot of people who... It's a, it's a funny thing because I think it does mean that, particularly if you look at the conservative side of things, that the kind of people who you are seeing like very, very wealthy people going into sort of politics. Um, people with more or, than one job. 
Yes, exactly. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's always very difficult talking about um, MPs' salaries because, of course, as you say, the national average is, is so much um, more below. But I, I have to say, I do know a lot of good people who wouldn't go into politics because of the money, because they live in London, where the cost of living is very, very, very high. And I have noticed that the kind like, look, some, take someone like Rishi Sunak, right? Rising star in politics sort of came out of nowhere. What people don't mention about him, he is probably the richest man in British politics in the history of time. Mm. He is married to somebody who is worth not just millions, but billions of pounds. So there's a whole thing. There's a much bigger discussion as well. Sorry to go on about this, but um, getting into politics is really expensive. If you want to run to become an MP, it's going to cost you about fifty, sixty thousand pounds. Many people don't get get it their first go. They have to do it loads. Of, so there's a big issue about money in politics. Sounds like there's almost enough for an entire show on it, but yeah. thank you for that. We'll, we'll move on now because we have a very special guest today. Uh, he is Head of News and Politics at joe.co.uk. Welcome to The Bunker, Ollie Dugmore. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Naomi. I've just uh, just interviewed Sadiq Khan at City Hall and I had to book it back home to record this podcast. I'm a little bit wet running through the rain, but otherwise Aww. I'm okay. How are you? Yeah, good. Did, did, did he give you any little hints about a London lockdown? Yeah, he said, uh, I guess the news line out of it, he said it's not a, it's not if, it's when. He said it's only a matter of time, basically, before we move into the next tier. So that's oh. really what we'll, we'll be leading with. But, Brace yeah, ourselves for that. Yeah, great. Good, good, happy news. I'm glad to bring it to you. <laughs> well, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, joe.co.uk. If you'd said five years ago that one of the most influential voices in politics would be a, a piss-taking viral site that superimposes politicians' heads on pop videos... People might have doubted you, and yet here you are. How did Joe do it? People ask this question quite often, and I, I, I often my response usually is just I don't think that anything that we've done is particularly magical or different. It's just we are trying we're trying to report and deliver information to a group of people who I think broadly are quite underserved by the rest of the media. Young people. We make timely funny video and in, a, in an original way and that's what we try to do and obviously the other thing behind it as well is you know we've got quite a young editorial team but it's an incredibly hard-working editorial team and you know the, the, we've got to the position where we are now because because of because of their hard work and of course I um, mean you know bunker listeners are uh, beautifully young and down with the kids and all the rest of it but just in case <laughs> there are any centrist dads out there who might be listening and aren't familiar can you briefly explain what what joe is I'd say three components, probably. The first is challenging authority or received wisdom. The second would be innovative storytelling. And the third would probably be entertainment. I think if you do all three of those things, that that, that sort of, at least when I'm looking at editing stuff or commissioning or, or producing something, that's those are the sort of the three criteria that I'm that I'm that I'm interested in um, for sure. Are you sure, Ian? I hope, I hope you're taking notes. Uh, <laughs> I literally am. <laughs> Good. Um, so, Ollie, how did you come to be running the the news and politics side, and, and what did you want to do with the site? Um, uh, yeah, so I I didn't realise that I was actually being interviewed for the job. Yeah. Uh, I I met someone in a in a hotel in a hotel bar. Nar McGarry and, and Evan Fanning, I met them in a hotel bar and I thought they were going to ask me to host the podcast for them. And so we were sort of just chatting away. I think I, I think I had a pint. I don't think they did. And then at the end of the conversation, they were like, yeah, so we were sort of thinking about, you know, being maybe our political editor. I couldn't not really. It's sort of been my passion project before I worked at The Tab, which is a student newspaper. I've always sort of had an interest in creating journalism for sort of a younger generation for sure the simple stated ambition is that on any given day to, to basically win social that day i mean we during the general election 2019 we had the most viewed video um which was like a just i just did a vox pop asking people about sort of asking them to guess healthcare prices in in america oh yeah i remember that one yeah it's good and, and thank you and um you know but it's again it's not groundbreaking you know it's just like it's a vox pop right and that did like 60 million views i think that's that sort of encapsulates it really we uh, tell you what a lot of broadcasters they treat the, ele the election is like a marathon for them right and we just sort of sprinted the last hundred meters and then declared victory but that's sort of what we do like we're a small team we don't have the resources of these big broadcasters so you know basically we sort of have to fight and a bit of an, an insert advantage yeah yeah are there other bits of content that you are even more proud of even if they didn't potentially get as many millions of, of views oh yeah for sure what are your greatest hits 
I was interviewing a woman called Wad Al-Khatib. She documented uh, the bombardment of Homs. Mm. And the sort of, I think she she was nominated for an Oscar. I don't think she won it, but basically she she told the story of the siege through the lens of her newborn baby, Sama. That was just like that was mind blowing for me. She was such an inspiration. And I tell you what, another one actually, a woman in conflict um, called Arnesa Bulyushmish Kustera. She's a survivor of the Bosnian genocide, and I interviewed her about that. And that for me was probably one of my proudest moments. That's what I like doing. I like sort of platforming people who don't really get much of a space. First up, all these jobs will be lost, like tears in the rain. On Monday evening, Boris Johnson unveiled his long-anticipated and widely briefed three-tier system of lockdown measures for England, and the rules go into force on Wednesday with Liverpool in the very high category, with pubs, bars, gyms and bookies all set to close and the fate of restaurants yet to be decided. Ian, there's been a strong reaction to these measures, with very little sense of us all being in it together. Is the government in panic mode, would you say? No, not quite. I mean, look, there's a, there's a bunch of different aspects to it. The first one is the least interesting one, which we obviously talk about all the time, which is that just, they are just the most grimly incompetent bunch of fuckers that we've seen in our entire life. But the thing is, we've mentioned it so much that you do have to price it in, and yet it is worth repeating on a regular basis. The rest of it that's going on is, I mean, we live in an incredibly centralised state which is always terrible about communicating with sort of local officials, local leaders. And this is a very highly centralizing government. Doesn't even really like sharing any kind of power with the civil service. Doesn't like doing it, you know, with media, with courts, let alone with local officials from different parties, like local mayors. So you have that natural problem there. You also have a sort of um, ignorance about the areas that they're talking about. So we've had instances of MPs not being invited to meetings because they, number 10, simply hasn't recognized that their constituency is actually in the area that's being discussed. We've, I mean, when you look at the, the reports that were coming from local officials in Manchester about the conversations they were having with Number 10, they were saying that they, it just wasn't clear to them that the government understood that Manchester and Greater Manchester were actually separate things. There's closed decision-making without where really the government works without really taking on any kind of criticism. And so therefore, when it comes out with these plans, the plans are usually extremely faulty. There's a communication strategy, which is, I mean, it is fucked in ways that I cannot believe. <laughs> if, if you have, you know, if you have mayors, local mayors who are finding out about what's going on in their own town by a half-assed briefing to the Times or a blog from Peston, you think like that is a communication strategy is just an absolute disaster. And it's also quite morally reprehensible. You know, these are not announcements that should be made in that way. And then I think finally, over the top of all of it, you have what is essentially this act of triangulation. And you actually see every time Boris Johnson talks about this stuff and increasingly his ministers, the first thing they'll say is, well, some people want us to lock everything down and some people want to let everything flush through and we're taking the middle pathway. I think what that really refers to is his own cabinet and his own parliamentary party and the, the positions that they're reaching especially now that since today we've seen them really pull away from, from the advice from Sage, are essentially based on actually trying to find that middle ground, that compromise position within the parliamentary party, within cabinet. And what you get at the end of it is the last five days, which have just been an, a, an absolute mess. And today, the response to it has been very, very severe indeed. Because the country is definitely in favour of, of tougher lockdown, you know, poll after poll showing that. So uh, I really think they should take it from this uh, former Liberal Democrat. If you stand in the middle of the road, you get uh, <laughs> run down by traffic coming at you in both directions. Um, the, the plans, however, do appear to give local leaders a lot more control than they previously had. Obviously, you say that this is far, far, far too late. But why do you think it waited this long to give them power of lockdowns? Um, and is it are they doing it now just to sort of shield themselves from when things inevitably go wrong and they can give somebody else the blame for everything? They will do that last part, but I don't think that is why they are doing it. I mean, in the end, that there will, of course, I mean, these guys shift blame. You look at the way they treat the civil service, right? If you can shift blame onto a permanent secretary or whatever, then, then you will do it. And they'll do the same thing. However, I don't think that's why they're doing it. I think they're doing it because they were genuinely aghast at the level of outrage and the level of anger 
in places like Manchester and places like Liverpool. And the people to read for this is, is regional journalists, local journalists. Like the last seven days have been a masterclass in the importance of regional journalism. That's where the most inf- important information is coming from. And the sheer raging anger about what is being done with this this view of like London does not know what the fuck it is doing. And yet it is imposing this stuff on us in a way that looks grimly unfair. So I think this stuff was motivated by a sense of shock at the extent of anger in those towns and cities, rather than by some kind of strategic um, assessment. Although in the end, they will still try and blame them when things go wrong anyway. And what do you make of of the anger coming from uh, the official opposition? You know, Labour weren't happy with the 10pm curfew, but then they said they wouldn't vote against it. Are they giving voters a sufficient sense of what the alternative strategy would be if Starmer was Prime Minister? No, not really. I mean, I think where you've, the only message you could really get from him at the moment from somewhere is, well, it will be more competent, which, by the way, I, I Which would be difficult. Exactly. It's a low bar, but I, I do believe that he would, you know, easily hurdle it. Um, I don't think you get a clear impression of what the alternative would be. And, and like, that's quite difficult, right? Because, of course, everyone's shifting according to where scientific advice was, or at least the government was doing that until it broke decisively away from Sage. I, I think it's it is pretty hard to say what Labour's position would be. That he was it looked, you know, last week I would have said I was pretty certain that he would vote against the 10 p.m. curfew. Clearly has no scientific evidence, doesn't make doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Um, it, he's backed down from that. If you were looking at the opinion polls that you just mentioned, I think it was 40% in the latest YouGov saying they would go further than the, than the government has done. The natural place for, for Labour to go to now is to say, well, you know, you've got to get tougher and faster, although there are dangers in taking that route as well. But I have to, it has to be said, looking at Labour right now, you would be hard pressed to know what exactly it is that they would do differently, except for the fact that they would do it better. Aisha, in March, uh, with a nationwide lockdown, there was some sense that we were all in it together. But this patchwork quilting we heard about yesterday is is splitting North and South, uh, England from Wales and Scotland. Do people still have the capacity to stick with the rules if they don't really feel that we're in it together anymore? It's it's really difficult because I think a lot of people do kind of want to do the right thing. I think that is their sort of natural instinct. But then this huge sense of fatigue and confusion has also um, kicked in. And it's a bit like, you know, when you start your sort of diet for like, actually, it's not even the case in, in my case, or even on day one, I'm, I'm like not sticking to the diet. Let's be quite honest about that. But, you know, you start off with good intentions and then it kind of slides. And of course, we have the sort of, you know, the, the infamous eye, t- eye test in Barnard Castle and all of that kind of thing. So that very much cemented, oh, well, hang on a minute. It's one rule for them one rule for us. I think this north-south divide is really, really, really interesting. And it does really prove the point that so many people like, you know, Andy Burnham's actually been banging on about this for years. Lisa Nandy talked about it when she sought to be leader of the Labour Party. There is this massive um, kind of north-south divide. You know, it, it still is very, very real. I mean, you look at places like Leicester. Leicester's actually been under lockdown for over 100 days and we really don't talk about it. And of mm. course, the infection rates are not coming Coming down um, in a lot of these areas. So I think people are tired, confused, very, very anxious about the future. And I think rather than a sense of, I think people want to feel we're all in it together. But I sort of think on a deep down level, particularly because of the job losses and the economic pain coming down the track. And also, let's not forget, a lot of the ministers they see on television dictating to them are very wealthy men. Yes. It does feel like it's kind of, you know, each every man for himself and his family now. Yeah, like one one rule for them. And Ian touched on the importance of and and the brilliance, in fact, of uh, local journalism. And I I agree with him. They've been fantastic. And I think they're some of the millennials we should watch coming up through the ranks. But they've pointed out, you know, some the ones from Manchester Evening News and Yorkshire Post and things like that, that in Rishi Sunak's own constituency, actually infection numbers per 100,000 are higher than in areas that are in much more stringent lockdowns. So it's not even necessarily a a north-south divide, it's within the north, uh, because of course his constituency is in Richmond in North Yorkshire. Yeah, you know, there, there is, of course, this this kind of huge wealth discrepancy and just hearing, again, these very rich men, and they are mainly men because it's mainly a male-led sort of government that, yeah, and the, the people taking the decisions are, are men, you know, preaching to people saying, actually, you know, I couldn't live on 
two thirds of, 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 of my salary. And I certainly couldn't live on, you know, five quid an hour. But, but you should, you should be able to sort of do that. I think that's a really big part of the story. You know, we're talking a lot about public health inequality and a lot of the other inequalities, but there's kind of like, just just like the sheer financial inequality, you know, who, you know, that's the other side, that's the other dimension of this pandemic. The WHO touched upon this, that, you know, it's just, it's driving up all these inequalities. And of course, there is this pre-existing North-South divide a structural north-south divide and that's just going to get worse but I also think that you know in terms of praising people I think the regional journalists have been brilliant. Let, let's talk about some other experts as we recorded on Tuesday it uh, emerged that the scientific advisors uh, had actually called for a 14-day circuit breaker lockdown in England two weeks ago so these are you know the, the scientists that are advising government directly but government refused can they can they claim that they are being led by the science anymore so I thought it, it is it was fascinating. I mean, that was a really explosive moment when Chris Whitty, standing right next to the Prime Minister at his big televised press conference, basically dumped on the three-tier system and said that, you know, even at the highest level, this was not enough to turn things around. And of course, we've seen the Lelite um notes from or the the the, the notes from from Sage. And I think the situation that Boris Johnson now finds himself is he is as you alluded to earlier, he's like the Liberal Democrat in all of this. Bless him. Um, he's like, <laughs> on the. I'm so sorry for him from, from that point of view. I mean, he, he, has, has, he hasn't had a worse. I mean, he's been a lot of bad things said about him. The only time any sympathy for Johnson, he's the Liberal Democrat and all this. He's bang in the middle. He's so he's surrounded by doves and hawks on this. On the the doves are, are a small group of people. It's mainly Matt Hancock by himself with a bit of Michael Gould saying actually. <laughs> We need to go further. We should have, you know, put this circuit breaker in earlier. And then you've got Rishi Sunak, Priti Patel. You know, you've got all these kind of treasury hawks saying, absolutely not. We've got to like kind of deny the, the science. We have to put, you have to do this false dichotomy, this false choice. It's health or, or wealth, even though uh, you can't have a healthy economy if you've got a sick society. So Boris Johnson has found himself kind of trapped in the middle of all of this. And he's done the worst of all things where he's just kind of tried to split the difference. So instead mm-hmm. of bringing in that circuit breaker, Two weeks ago, which we should have done, he ended up doing the stupid deal with Rishi Sunak saying, OK, we'll just shut pubs one hour early, which made no sense to to anybody. No. So I think they, they haven't. I, th- I think they, they're definitely not following the science. I think he is in a really sort of difficult position. I mean, I'm no fan of the man, but any of these decisions are, are, are not easy. But he's they're kind of in the worst of all worlds. They're going to get massive amount of criticism They whatever they do, they're going to harm the economy. And it's not actually going to get the infections down either. Ollie, let's go back up to the the north of England. Obviously, there's been a fractious uh, few days for the government up there and leaders and and mayors locally, as as Aisha's alluded to, up in arms about all of this. But but so are the people. They're angry. uh, Voters are very confused. And of course, in places like Liverpool, where the government, you know, rarely, if ever, has had much support, put put them to one side. But obviously, swathes of the North did flip from Labour to the Tories at the last election. Do you think it's got to the stage yet where the government are now in danger of losing a lot of the areas that they'd only just won? Hmm, yes. A um, couple of things. I, I just on the local journalism point, sir, I know you asked me that question, but I just wanted to add there's some really interesting independent media sites starting in those areas. Now, Manchester Mill would be one in Manchester, the Bristol Cable in Bristol that I think are really interesting and, and, and worth looking at. But to the point of your question, I mean, um, Sadiq, Sadiq Khan said this to me earlier when I interviewed him. He basically said that his communication with Boris Johnson and said he's spoken to him twice, basically in the last, essentially in the last six months. Um, and I've interviewed Andy Burnham and, and, and others. And that sort of seems to be a recurring theme. And, and I think Ian touched on sort of how the MPs in these broader areas have been sort of left out. They've received invites to calls after the calls have started. All this sort of stuff. I mean, and, and it touches on that centralized point. In terms of whether this they'll 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 lose votes because of this, it's, it's always a difficult game predicting that. And obviously, as you mentioned, Liverpool. I don't think there's very, there's very little chance of of that ever happening. Them going Tory. I mean, as oh, as they as, don't as they like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as they like to say, Scouse not English and all, and all the rest of it. But the I think the British electorate essentially. I think they'll give you a chance. They they will they wait to form an opinion. The problem is once they form that opinion, you're fucked. 
Like you cannot change it. And seen some interesting polling over the last few days that shows that Tory voters now are only just starting to become a majority in terms of doubting the efficacy of the government's approach yeah. to this. Where, and obviously for Labour and, and across the general population, it's way in the other direction. Like it's, it's pretty damning. But I, I, I'm hesitant to say like, oh, they've lost the red wall already because I, people made the journey to vote for them that first time. And I'm, I'm just, I know it, it, I totally agree. It's been a, it's been an utter shit show. I just don't know yet if, if I think it's too early to be honest with you, to be able to say whether, whether they're going to, whether they'll pivot back straight away or not. I know that's a non-answer. I'm sorry. No, no, I think I think that's fine because, you know, look, a week is a long time in politics and we're four years off a, another election. So who knows what what the, the voters will be judging government on by then. Um, let, let's go back to your sort of uh, area of expertise and that sort of younger people. Liverpool, Newcastle, Manchester, all facing very stringent lockdowns, all famous for their nightlife. Um, is, is the government just trying to pin blame on young drinkers and clubbers and... If so, is this going to sort of pit the generations against each other even more than they already have been in recent years? Yeah, look, I mean, I would challenge you to name a government that has ever sort of really ever been pro, like the rave scene. Does that exist? Um, you know, I, it's uh, yeah. Look, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's it's a, it's a concern, and I often I actually think there's a bit of a bit of you know a snide sort of approach that it's not culture, it's not high minded, and it's just people you know get it, getting off their heads and all the rest of it. But look, the, the thing the thing here is like it. Look at look at turnout in our general elections in recent years, and and show me one where you would say I mean, anyone that you're happy with, like the number of people that that engage with the with with politics, right? And there is a huge number of people in this country, like it is huge, whose Friday and Saturday night revolves around going out, getting mortal, and and forget forgetting about their problems. Often, actually, it comes from a place of sadness. It comes from forget, forgetting about the sort of the mundanity and the drudgery of their day to day lives. It's escapism, um, and those people. They've, they they don't they don't really engage with politics and also the the fundamental thing is politics doesn't really engage with them you know it's 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 like it's it's sort of like saying um you know how why should why should we listen to these public health measures these you know these these what they're talking about and 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 all the rest of it with the pandemic is like you know these people have never cared about us they've never taken an interest in 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 our pursuits what we like to do um and obviously there's there's the additional element of this which is sort of the illegal side of things you know uh drug use and and, and illegal raves and all that sort of thing which you know as much as, as much as it leaves a bad taste in 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 most tory mouths there is a huge part of our economy that revolves around these illegal trades you know that it's, it's it's, it's money exchanging hands, albeit in a legal way, um, and and by attacking these parties and, and all the rest of it, you know what's surprising about it. Like, like I said, like could you when since when since when has a government been in favour of of people you know um, sort of going out and and doing this that and the other? So you know I'm I, it's it's not surprising. I think I think you know in terms of what it pit generations against each other more. Um, look the. the 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 culture war sort of rages on, doesn't it? I mean, if it's not this, it'll be something else. I feel I I don't know what the answer is in terms of us getting out of it, but yeah, I'm sure I'm sure it's going to entrench things further, and I'm sure it's going to make things all the more nasty for us. So something to look forward to. <laughs> and uh, and in uh, even more sort of tricky news, Aisha Scotland uh, pubs in well across the central belt now. I think are, are shut until the twenty fifth of October. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon is is putting in her measures earlier than England. Um, is her sort of much much more clear and unambiguous leadership working on all of this? Um, you know, we, we often think that that you know England's always playing catch up with her. Is is this clear leadership actually? you know, keeping her in a, in pole position up there? Well, she has been very, very, very um, popular. She still is very popular. She is a very gifted political communicator. She's arguably, next to Angela Merkel, you know, one of the most successful politicians in Western Europe. The fact that we have a prime minister who is so kind of spectacularly inept and so kind of, you know, useless at communicating makes her look very, very good. However, 
there is a feeling in Scotland that she is sort of fetishized, particularly by people in London where all the power and influence lies. Because yes, she's very good. I'm a huge, you know, fan of her sort of work ethic and her kind of, you know, her communication style. But if you actually look at what's happened, yes, she's made these big announcements, but what's happening in Scotland is is pretty bad. It's not like Scotland has got away with things scot-free, um, if you pardon the pun. You know, there was a sort of horrendous situation in care homes to the point where, you know, actually newspapers in other countries, like loads of American newspapers were reporting it more than actually the, the UK-wide British press. Uh, just this weekend, uh, The Sun on Sunday uh, revealed that the the, the the test and trace app in Scotland is sort of near breaking point. They've had the same fiasco with um, exams. They've had the same fiasco with universities as well. But Nicola Sturgeon is, you know, uh, is is a much better regarded politician. So I think the situation in Scotland, the, the sort of presentation is absolutely head and shoulders above the, the kind of absolute kind of daily car crash that we have in Westminster. But if you actually look at the results and what's happening on the ground it doesn't necessarily mean that kind of scotland is is you know this kind of you know haloed place where everything you know it's not new zealand let's not kid ourselves yeah i was going to ask you about that because like you know the s&p have got lots of internal problems at the moment you've still got the salmon issue rumbling on and then of course we, we touched on this at the top of the show the case of margaret ferrier mp refusing to resign despite traveling across the country with coronavirus is any of this and any of these scandals having an impact on independence do you think so I think that the SNP is having a hard time. Nicola Sturgeon's probably under more pressure than we've seen her in a in a long, long time. She's had this spectacular falling out with Alex Salmon over his um, the the allegations of, of sexual misconduct, which he was he was cleared by a, a, a jury, um, and of course all the Margaret Ferrier stuff as well. But I think what's interesting is the fact that things are starting to go really badly wrong with COVID again. Is Try, is actually making people focus on that as the issue rather than independence. So even though Nicola Sturgeon is very popular, last week, I think it was on Friday night, when the pubs shut in Scotland for from six o'clock, loads of ice was dumped in front of the Scottish Parliament by very angry kind of local hospitality people. Now, the SNP are going to try and keep the independence thing going because that is their sort of single issue. They are a single issue party. So they put out, for example, an advert just in the last, I think, 40 hours about in independence but actually that felt quite crass to a lot of people because you know when deaths are going up again like is this really the time for discussions about constitutional change not dissimilar to the arguments by the way that we were making about Brexit and of course Nicola Sturgeon was making about making about Brexit could could be applied to Scottish independence so I think that is still they're still going to push that at every um opportunity and definitely the polls show that support for independence is going up but it does feel like now strategically is not the time for them to sort of bang on about it when things are sort of when they're kind of losing control of covid up north as well And sticking with the issue of political communications, last week Boris Johnson announced another plan to shake up number 10 with Allegra Stratton, Chancellor Rishi Sunak's head of comms, set to become the new face of Downing Street. Stratton, a former BBC and ITV News presenter, will host the government's new White House-style televised press briefings, similar to those that we saw during the uh, first wave of the COVID pandemic. Aisha, you kind of left government for journalism, but what makes someone leave journalism for government? Like, what's the appeal for Stratton here? And and could she go back into journalism after a job like this if she wanted to? So I know Allegra um, pretty well. We actually worked quite closely together when I was a press sec- political press secretary and she was a journalist. Um, and it's, it's, it, is, it is interesting that she's made the, the jump. Look, the truth is, working in politics is amazing. It is so interesting. You, If you're a political animal, which we all are, any one of us would absolutely love it. It's very, very stressful. It's very, very high octane. But also, it is one of the most thrilling things you will ever do in your life. You know, you're part of a cause. Um, you know, you're at the centre of things. You've, you've, you, you're not just reporting on the news. You're creating the news. And that is you know that that's a that's a you know fabulously interesting all-consuming thing. So I can see why she why she did it. And also, let's not kid ourselves. This is a you know even though it's a really poison chalice, it's a sort of sexy job as well. She's going to become one of the most famous people 
in the country. As I said, she's going to be at the heart of everything. And even if it does go absolutely tits up, which it probably will, she's going to earn <laughs> a lot of money for the rest of her life and making speeches about it. She'll get some job in some big comms consultancy. So in a way, this job is going to set her up for, for life, but it's not necessarily going to be easy. And if, and, and I actually spoke to, um, I interviewed Anthony Scaramucci on my Times Radio show a couple of weeks ago. He lasted 11 days. <laughs> <laughs> famously and I asked him if he had any advice for her and he said and he absolutely got to the truth he said look be straight up the people can smell bullshit they can smell the truth don't tell lies um, and that's going to be the tough thing for her in this job yeah. because you're as good as your boss and her boss is going to be Dominic <laughs> Cummings and that is a massive problem uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> a, a lying liar who lies and edits his own blog so it's clear why she's doing it then uh, money fame power um, but why is the government doing this uh, Boris Johnson already sent the scientists out to take his flak why does he need a new human shield I think part of it is um as, as you say, it's just it's it's another form of, of, of defence. You know, one of the things that we have discovered about this prime minister is that, you know, everybody thought he was going to be this amazing communicator because he was good at after dinner speeches and he was good on Have I Got News For You. It turns out he's actually one of the, you know, every time he appears on television or, or does something, you know, things seem to, to go worse. He is not a gifted political communicator as a prime minister. He's not particularly good at prime minister's questions and he's not the right prime minister for these times. So they very much kind of decided, okay, we need to try and blame as many people as possible. We need to try and deflect from the prime minister as much as possible. So she um, provides that opportunity. And it's going to be really interesting to see if the broadcasters play ball with this. I hope they don't carry um, the the briefings live every day. And I hope they don't make her the sort of go-to person for clips on topics. This should not be used. And this is what they're trying to do, but the broadcaster should not play ball. They're going to try and use her to stop so many of these really car crash interviews that we now see on a sort of like, you know, every 12 hour basis, whether it's Robert Jenrick or Matt Hancock getting absolutely kebabbed by Kay Burley or whoever it is, <laughs> they're going to try and, I think they're going to try and use her to sort of stop them doing as much as well. Cause they can say, Oh, well, look, you, you will, you know, you can take it. You can take your clip from the three thirty press briefing, but I hope broadcasters do not play ball with that. Ian, hearing hearing Aisha say that, can the, the papers and TV push back against this? You know, the idea that ministers don't do the Today programme seems to have been grudgingly ex- accepted. Will, will they just accept this, do you think? How has it gone down with your fellow lobby journalists? Well, there's, there's not much you can do, is there? I mean, if a minister won't go on the Today programme, then, you know, then, then, then they're not going to go. I mean, you can complain. I mean, P- Piers Morgan, who's not a man that I ever thought I would find myself praising, um, you know, has, is on Twitter doing the best he can of ministers not appearing on Good Morning uh, Britain, but just being like, they're not appearing because they don't give a shit about you, you know, talking to his audience. So, I mean, he's doing what, what he can to try and change that situation. But ultimately, if they won't appear, they won't appear. This is happening. It is part of a process of, which probably started sort of when the lobby was moved from the Palace of Westminster to Downing Street, which is one of those things that means nothing to anyone, but, but that does have quite, quite a, it's quite a telling move, I think. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it was done without consultation. Now, this is happening. I have to say, I don't feel, it, there are very negative points, and I think it, it does move us towards this presidential approach, and that takes us further away from just having this core belief in the sovereignty of Parliament and the Prime Minister being, you know, I mean, to represent himself in Parliament, that being the core area that he has to, to represent. So if there is a problem there, a constitutional move, which is unhealthy. However, I, I, I don't dislike the idea of people seeing things a bit like lo- lobby briefings. Now, lobby briefings take place twice a day. That No one sees them. They, they have been on the record for some time now, since I think Alistair Campbell, yes, since Alistair Campbell. Um, they're quite a good forum to be honest you see most journalists you know at their best not in every single case but i i am always impressed by the capacity and the quick thinking of journalists when they're hunting as a pack and in the lobby and lobby briefings you very often see that just the same question being asked in a variety of minor variations (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like you know as a pack they're often more effective than in any other way and and i you know, I, I'm not going to suggest that this is the way it panned out during the coronavirus briefings, because most people were looking at that and thinking it was a terrible job. And it wasn't always a very good one, partly, of course, because you're 
you're virtual, right? So you're removed from the situation. It's much harder. You're not really communicating with each other. It's much easier for the person answering questions to cut you off after one question rather than allowing you to sort of bounce around in that way and try to find their vulnerabilities, their weak spots to extract information. But generally speaking, my, my instinct is if you can put this stuff on TV, that doesn't necessarily in and of itself, in the abstract, seem like an unhealthy development. The fact that it's coming from this government obviously makes us vigilant, but in and of itself, it, it could be okay. Ollie, uh, Boris Johnson is often, uh, although not by Aisha, talked about as a great communicator. Um, <laughs> but, but if he isn't even willing to put himself out there to the media and begin talking to people, what is the point of him? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. Um, well, it was to, to to deliver the eighty seat majority, right? I mean, I would, I'd, I'd probably, I'd probably contest it that that assertion. To be honest with you, he, he's he won he won the election and won eighty seats on off the back of three words. I mean, that that is if that's not great communication, what is it? It's, I mean, it's it's difficult, right? I mean, it, I as a journalist want to see him doing those interviews. One because I think it's good for our profession and I think it's good for the country the counter view to that which is the one that Dom Cummings and to, and because of that also Boris Johnson has <laughs> is that essentially um fuck GMB like what does it matter if we skip it what does it matter if we skip the today program like these you know th- th- these these guys what is the actual depth if we give them an interview how much of, like what what is the impact on the electorate you know the 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 average voter are they sitting down to GMB being like, when's Jenrick on? I've got to, I've got to see him, you know, being dismantled. Or is it in reality, what's on in the background whilst they're, whilst they're having their cornflakes? Um, you know, to a lesser extent, same with the Today programme. You know, I, we, we listen to the Today programme. Like, it, 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 we, we get a feel for the news agenda. It starts the day off. For the average voter, does it? Um, you know, there's two, there's two contrasting points here. But yeah, I would say, I, w- I would I would contest that he's not a great communicator. I would say that the 2019 election result probably demonstrated that he in fact is, yeah. And finally, what job should you be doing? With the biggest recession in 300 years upon us and the job market taking a hammering, a handy government tool to help people find the right profession surfaced last week. It turned out to have been launched some time ago, a bit like the advert that told ballerina Fatima to get a job in cyber, but with the government showing a tin ear to those in need of career help, especially in the arts, it landed badly when it started advising people to take jobs in booming industries like DJing and magazine editorship. And for some reason, kept advising people to be cake decorators or boxers. Ollie, uh, what, what did the test say you should do? Uh, I got um, football referee. Uh, I <laughs> That's got, quite fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got, um, I got paramedic and I got actor. All, all worthy causes. Yes, I suppose the last one, perhaps, perhaps closest to reality, a bit of a pretender, maybe. I don't know, but yeah, those, are, those, those, are the, those are the three that I got. Ian, I'm guessing you got cake decorator. This fucking thing, man. It said, <laughs> it, at the end of it, it said, "You are." I, I, I'm quoting this. I copied it. You are sociable and find it easy to understand people. I mean, just to be straight, like I fucking hate people, and I don't. I've never understood it. You are motivated. Set yourself personal goals and are comfortable competing with other people. It's like, all I want in my life is to read Batman comics and for everyone to leave me the fuck alone. For this thing to come out and say I'm motivated, I specifically selected an option that said I am. I I, I said I strongly disagree with the idea that I'm motivated by competition and you be comfortable with competing with other people. And then he said, you enjoy helping and listening to other people. And it's like, I fucking hate helping people. And I can't think of anything worse than having to listen That's to That's not people. true. That's not this true. This is a brilliant job now. interview for you want to do someone else. This is a brilliant interview for you, Ian. <laughs> so they find out, I know. Yeah. How well do you feel you work as part of a team? It's like, fuck you, leave me the fuck alone. And the options it gave me was hospitality and food. <laughs> retail and sales i mean sales i fucking i would rather i can't think of a job i respect less than sales. and emergency and uniform services and i just feel like anyone if they knew me at all like wearing a uniform is not high on my list of shit that i feel but, like i need to do in my life so no my i would rate this app application very very low indeed but but you could combine all three and like sell chef's uniforms 
That's food retail and sales your, all in one go. Is that genuinely your recommendation for what I should do <laughs> if, if journalism fails for me? Look, it's always good to have a backup, Ian. Aisha, <laughs> what, what job has the government got in store for you? Um, so I got, I did get cake decorated. <laughs> <laughs> and you were quite happy, right? <laughs> I know. And I also got head chef, which I like because I like status. So I was like, head chef, not just chef, head chef, get me, do your diary. But um, what is so genius about this? I am literally the shittest cook on the face of the earth. And my cooking is so legendary. Like, it's so known for being bad that, like, even Nigella Lawson has contacted me going, you're a really shit cook. Like, I actually have, like, official oh, wow. confirmation from that like when I cook it's like pig swill like you couldn't even give it to people in prison like it's absolutely horrendous <laughs> so I just thought this was absolutely genius I mean it's so out of kilter I may as well have got football referee do you know what I mean um I got almost the same as Ian actually and I, I it made me laugh because I was like right you're telling me to go and work in hospitality and retail like two of the industries that are in the most terminal decline right now thanks, thanks <laughs> to the government so like yeah go, go and work in an industry we're decimating uh yeah thanks a bunch for that um ollie uh, i mean it, lots of conspiracy theories doing the rounds that this is actually just you know coming psyops he's trying to collect loads of data is that if it is true is that such a bad thing I mean, how, how can the government be expected to help people uh, w- without knowing the skill set of the nation? Yeah, um, I don't know. I think uh, the sort of the, the sort of data that people sh- would probably be referring to in that conspiracy theory, I think they, they probably largely already have um, already as well. Sort of, you know, if a psychological profile, I don't know if you've ever taken any of these sort of like bullshit type um corporate away day like find out what type of person you are myers-briggs oh. test things are pseudoscience um, yeah. and nonsense in case anyone yes wants my view and my um but it's sort of like yeah um i don't know i have taken one of those and what, are you entj it, uh <laughs> i don't know <laughs> What? Oh, the four, oh, the four letter code. Yeah. The four letter code. It tells you. Um, uh, possibly. What? Well, I don't know. What, what? What is that one? Yeah, you know, it's like your classic extroverty, you know, noisy person. You've you've politics. already got uh, you already got me down to a T. Perhaps then you, you've already you've diagnosed my personality type based on our conversation. Aisha, what what did you make of poor old Fatima the ballerina? <laughs> First of all, there's so much wrong with that. And I don't care that it was like two years ago. It still fundamentally sucks. Like it's eternally like sucking, basically. First of all, how many, there are no Fatimas in the ballet. Well, let's be completely honest. (laughs) That is like the first like absolute nonsense, right? Secondly, I just felt like it was sort of like, you know, flash dance. It was like dancer by day, welder by night. It was just so completely <laughs> like Rishi Sunak. What a feeling. Like just so ridiculous. So ridiculous. And then suddenly I felt like Rishi Sunak was like my Indian dad going to me, like, be good. I want to be in the arts. No, become a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy, I want to be a ballerina or a princess or a stand-up comedian. No, you can be doctor, doctor, or doctor. Like, that's what it felt like. <laughs> I was just, like, so triggered by the whole thing. It's like, basically, the government has become, like, Asian parents. <laughs> We've been locked in our rooms for months, having to study and do work. Now we can't become ballerinas. I mean, this is just, like, a nightmare. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. Ian, what's your diversion of choice this week? I've been reading um, Justice League International, which is an old 1980s Justice League comic uh, by Giffen and Demetrius and Maguire, which is kind of like, if you're a comics guy, you will know you will know this series. And you'll probably have like a memory of it when you're a kid. And you go back to it because it was sort of like, it's probably like the early DNA of, well, not quite, like the mid-range DNA of what sort of turned into the squabbling Avengers when the movies came out. Lots of squabbling, kind of slightly sitcom It gave me a lot of joy as a kid. Going back to it now is one of the most supremely pleasurable and like, uh, like I want to use the word safe experience. It's like a Aww. massive, like beautiful, finely woven blanket that is keeping me safe from the cold, cold air outside. It is absolute fucking comics perfection right there on a plate. I'm aware that like five people listening (laughs) will know what the (laughs) fuck I'm talking about, but I can guarantee that those five right now are just like, yes, mate. Yes, mate. 
And that is entirely correct because it really is fucking flawless, I think. So, Aisha, as Ian uh, regresses to the womb, uh, what, what, have, what have you been diverting your mind from politics for? Well, I ended up like having a terrible um, escape route that actually made me want to, you know, bring back sort of Chris Whitty doing um, the daily press conferences. Oh, and that horror was Emily in Paris. I, I, I started watching this appealing thing on Netflix. <laughs> it is so and- bad. It's so bad. I've obviously had to watch the whole thing. Though I've, I haven't even made it through like the episode one. I was literally like throwing shoes at the television. It was so bad. Like I'm all for free movement, but I'm fr- freedom of movement. But I was like, deport this fucker. Like, just so annoying. You can like see how the French just hate the Americans so much. So it's so bad. It's actually developed a new genre, which is hate watching because everyone's watching it and just getting so incensed about it. And they so teased us by saying it was like the new sex in the city it is not yes, <laughs> it is I know. it's so cruel it's so cruel ollie how about you how have you been taking your mind off politics i'm having dinner with a friend this evening oh no actually no no he works in politics so <laughs> no um uh i did uh jujitsu on sunday that was nice oh, but I, t- to be honest with you i'm we're trying to get out to the u.s for the election so i i i'm afraid I can't, i'm not really i'm just like all research all trying to embassy wrangling and nonsense so it's gonna be like that for six weeks so very little escape for me right now god that's miserable i don't know why i just said that i mean i would have said you know maybe out of the frying pan and into the fire but you know touch wood fingers crossed etc etc it might look like you're, yeah. you're you're going over for a celebration um i similar to um aisha i've been sort of netflixing to to escape and uh, i think alex probably mentioned this on a, a podcast previously so i nicked the idea of him and watched ratchet which is the prequel to one flew over the cuckoo's nest with sarah paulson and cynthia nixon uh, and others and some of the acting in it is absolutely phenomenal and uh, uh it it is, you know, talking a lot, obviously, about mental health um, and a good reminder that there are probably always people worse off than you. So I recommend everyone to go and watch that. And that's the end of the show. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. If you back us, you'll get a shout-out on the show. And here are some of those now. A big thank you and best wishes from me to Jacob Erstad, Helen Colborn and John Donnellan. Hello and many thanks from me to Nick Perry, Roger Howie and Andrew Stott. And a big thanks from me to Gemma Delaney, Neil Postlethwaite and Mark Ledden. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Naomi Smith with Ian Dunt and Aisha Hazarika. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison, and the assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.